sacrifice to conquer every sting of death. Sing, sing hallelujah. For joy awakes as dawning light when Christ disciples lift their eyes.
Good morning. Welcome to St. James Lutheran Church. We're glad to have you on this first Sunday after Easter. Uh, join us for service this morning. A couple quick notes. Uh, you can continue to give on our website. Uh, you can also uh, mail your tithes and offerings here. Uh, just a reminder, and not to sound like a shill or a salesperson, uh, please continue to give. Uh, this important ministry is still happening. There are still needs. Uh, ministry does look different uh, now. There's a lot less face-to-face and a lot more um, electronic stuff, a lot more texting, a lot more emailing, a lot more calling, but it is happening. And uh, we do need, um, we do need uh, your gifts to support the ministry here. Also, though, uh, most importantly, uh, I know that you know this, the gifts that we give to the church aren't donations, they aren't tips. Uh, it's a recognition. It's a confession that God owns all of me. Every blade of grass on my property, every bite of food that I eat, every one of my friends, all of my family members, every square inch of my property, every cent that I have in the bank belongs to him. And by giving him 10% of that, we're just saying we recognize that this is yours already. It's actually a gift he gives us to give to him. So please continue to give. Also, uh, after the worship service this morning at 10.30, we're going to be meeting together, some of us on Zoom, for a Bible study uh, like we did two weeks ago. If, you, if I had your email address uh, to join that Bible study, you should have gotten an invitation this morning. If you did not get an invitation to the Zoom Bible study on the Holy Spirit, please send me your email address over the next few minutes. We'll begin that Bible study at 10.30, so you have a little bit of time. But I'd love to see you guys there. It's a good opportunity uh, to spend uh, more one-on-one time with each other, more FaceTime, I should say, with each other, be able to have some conversations and talk about God's Word together. Uh, so please feel free to join us for that. And now let's begin worship. And we'll begin as we always do, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. You are the Lord, and you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that's in them, and you preserve them all. You've called us to yourself and given us a covenant. You've become our God and made us your people. And yet we've turned away from you. We've rebelled against you. You've delivered us many times according to your covenant mercies. You've warned us, and yet we've acted presumptuously. You've sent us prophets. We've turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened our necks and would not obey your law. But you are the Lord and you alone. You are our God, great and mighty. You keep covenant and steadfast love. We deplore our sins before you and before each other. They've only gotten us into trouble. They've only enslaved us. They've not given us the happiness they promised. Deliver us from our sin and the power and attraction of sin through the faithful suffering and death of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose intercession we plead and in whose name we pray. Amen. The good news is is that because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from 1 John. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven on account of Jesus' name. Amen. The psalm reading this morning is Psalm 148. It's from those great psalms right at the end of the book that celebrate 
uh, the new creation that celebrate God's final victory, his final vindication, his final, uh, final redemption for all creation. And it's just filled up with praise. The word praise is in here a ton. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above heaven and earth. He has raised up a horn for His people. Praise for all His saints, for the people of Israel who are near to Him. Praise the Lord. New Testament reading this morning is from Acts chapter 5. Peter and some of the other disciples have been arrested and they've been brought into the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council to be questioned about this teaching about Jesus the Messiah, who was assassinated but raised from the dead. Peter, uh, but Peter and the apostles answered the Sanhedrin, and they said this, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the council, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God you'll not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so they took his advice. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. Epistle reading is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained, obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Then finally, the gospel reading, and this is the traditional gospel reading for the Sunday after Easter, the story of Thomas doubting that Jesus had truly risen and then coming to faith. From John chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is one week after the resurrection, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them the first time when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's sing together the hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name.
So this morning, uh, we're going to begin a study through Romans 5 through 8, and I'll tell you why those particular chapters in just a few minutes. But I, I first thought of this when, I actually, if you'll remember a few weeks ago, it was one of the last Sundays that those of you who are members at St. James that we were able to meet together in person. Uh, I preached through Romans 5 verses 1 through 8, and as I was doing that, I thought to myself, I, it's, it's strange that I've never preached through Romans or Galatians. I, this is my 11th year as a pastor, and I've never one time preached through those. And I, I guess that the reason why I've always sort of avoided them, or, and actually even uh, when I'm preaching through the lectionary, uh, when I get to one of the, you know, if one of the four texts happens to be through Romans or Galatians, I actually sort of avoid it then. And I guess it's a little bit... Um, it's kind of the, if, if, you, if you're in a reformational tradition church, like our church is, especially a Lutheran church, Romans and Galatians, it's like right in your wheelhouse, right? And I guess a little bit of it is a sort of obnoxious on my part, since that let's not do what every, everybody else is doing. Uh, but part of it is, is that I had the wrong idea that it's just stuff we know. We all know Romans and Galatians, right? I mean, this, is, this, this was a mother's milk to us growing up. For those of you who grew up in a, a reformational church, if you grew up in a Lutheran church, especially Romans and Galatians, is something you grew up hearing about. And I, I guess embedded in that, in that thought of mine is the very, very wrong notion that we understand Romans and Galatians already. And so let's go on to other stuff that we haven't thought about in a while. You know, let's talk about the book of Proverbs or uh, Acts or something like that. But as I was studying Romans 5 for that last sermon, I thought, uh, this is really good. I repented of the notion that we all sort of already know what Romans means and decided we should probably, at some point in the future, dig into this. Now, why Romans 5 through 8? Let me tell you how this works. And uh, when I was growing up, for, for many of you who grew up in the church when you were growing up too, uh, you were told what Romans, the meaning of the book of Romans. I know this doesn't apply to all of you, but for some of you who've you know, studied deeply, uh, Romans always had a certain sort of meaning. Romans 1 through 4, there's, a, there's an outline in the traditional Reformation Lutheran understanding of the book of Romans. Ch- chapters 1 through 4 is about justification. That's the most important part. It's about God declaring us not guilty for the sake of Jesus Christ. Chapters 5 through 8 are about sanctification. It's about Christian living. It's about, after you're justified, how do you behave? What's the grounds of our behavior then? Chapters 9 through 11 are just sort of a weird interjection. In fact, at the college that I went to for undergrad, I took a class on the book of Romans. It was a Christian college. I took a class on the book of Romans. And I remember in the outline, the professor actually used the word parentheses for chapters 9 through 11. It's just this weird sort of insert. It's about predestination and Israel's future. And we don't really know what that has to do with justification and sanctification, but Paul must have thought it was important to talk about. And then chapters 12 through 16 is the way Paul likes to end letters, right? With sort of practical tips for daily living. You know, how, as a Christian, how should you live your life? What are some good ways to get along with other Christians and behave around unbelievers and that sort of thing? I was encouraged uh, recently to read Romans with a different framework. I mean, so the issue with the framework that I've described, chapters 1 through 4, justification, 5 through 8, sanctification, 9 through 11, predestination in Israel, 12 through 16, practical tips, is that 
first of all, who knows what chapters 9 through 11 are doing there. It seems sort of sad to say we don't really get why Paul would talk about this, but it's there, so let's discuss it. The main issue, though, is that that outline treats Paul as though he's addressing issues that are important for the reformers. You see, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, other reformers were very concerned with combating medieval Roman Catholic theology of works salvation. So when they read Paul, they would understand him to be saying, chapters 1 through 4, you're justified by grace. Chapters 5 through 8, you're also sanctified by grace. This is true, by the way. Chapters 1 through 4 and chapters 5 through 8 do say these things. But they're not necessarily the primary meaning because Paul wasn't addressing medieval Roman Catholics. Paul was addressing a specific situation in the Roman church. And I think that that situation will become apparent as I described to you what I think is going on in Romans in the next 30 seconds. Chapters 1 through 4 are indeed about justification. There's a sin problem. The sin problem is, is that the whole world is broken now because humans have rebelled against God. This sin problem is pervasive. It's universal. It's pan-ethnic. It's not just a Jewish problem. It's not just a Gentile problem. It's a human problem. This problem is destructive. It eats away in chapter 1 at our morals, at the things that make us, the, the way that God designed us to look like him. That's been destroyed by sin. It also results in death, chapter 3. God, though, has come up with a way to fix the sin problem, retaining his justice and being faithful to the covenant by sending his son Jesus to be a redemption for us. He does these two things, maintains his justice and liberates us from the slavery of sin, forgives us of our sins, justifies us by himself being faithful to the covenant that we've broken. Now, chapters 5 through 8 are an unpacking of that. Chapters 1 through 4 are not the main point. Chapters 5 through 8 tell a story based upon chapters 1 through 4. How does God justify it? And what does that look like in real time? What's the story of that? When we look at chapters 5 through 8 over the next several months, I hope you'll see that. It's the story of the world, chapters 5 through 8, packed into four little tiny chapters, where Paul says, Paul unpacks and analyzes what is justification What does salvation and redemption look like over the course of human history? We're not going to get into this right now because we're going to spend the next few months talking about it, but let me just give you a little uh, content uh, here, Uh, a little uh, advertisement. Chapter 5, some of you will know, is about Adam, the first man. Chapters 8, the end of our reading, is about glorification. It's about the new creation. So 5 is about Adam. 8, chapter 8, is about glorification and the new creation. And in between, we'll we'll track that trajectory between the creation of the world, the fall of all humans in Adam, God's plan to restore all creation. We'll we'll run into all kinds of cool stuff. We'll run into a new exodus, uh, the the new crossing of the Red Sea in Romans chapter 6. We'll come to the law, the giving of the law, and the promise that it makes, and the problem that it creates when it doesn't live up to that promise. We'll come to Jesus Christ. We'll come to the giving of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and how that solves the problem that the law created. And we'll finally get to new creation and the glorification of God and of our own bodies at the resurrection someday. Now, just to kind of quickly unpack what the rest of the book is about, chapters 9 through 11 is actually the crux of the book of Romans. It's the main point. This does not really have anything to do with what we're going to do 
for the next few months. Let me just point it out here, though. Chapters 9 through 11 is how should we who are Jewish Christians, not me, but the, the, the original Christians in the church of Rome, how should we, how are we able to include Gentile Christians in here? Romans 9 through 11 answers that question. Romans 1 through 8 builds up the framework with which to answer that question because God has created this justification plan to solve the problem not just of Jewish sin, but of Jewish and Gentile, of human sin. And that means that justification by necessity in Jesus Christ, if it's going to solve all of the sin problem, it's going to include Jews and Gentiles. Romans 9 through 11 is the apex of the book. Maybe more on that later. Maybe that's something that we can study together at a future date. Meanwhile, we'll study Romans 5 through uh, 8 now. Let's begin with Romans 5, 1 through 5. I'm going to read it one more time to us. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope doesn't make us shame. Hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If chapters 5 through 8 of Romans take justification and put it into the story of everything, it's important for us to do that too. And Romans 1, 5, 1 through 5 is going to start doing that. It's going to start to put salvation into the story. See, justification is not, it was, let me say this, it's more than a fact. Frequently the temptation for those of us who believe in justification by grace through faith is to think of justification as a rock-solid fact, which of course it certainly is in Jesus Christ. But it's much more than a fact. It's not just something to know. It's not just something to think is true. It's something to put into action. God puts it into action in the story of the universe. Romans 5-8 through are going to tell that story. God puts it into action in the story of your life if you are someone who has been justified. See, justification by grace, we frequently think of that as you know, it's, it's a fact, like the boiling point of water, 100 degrees Celsius. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you know. It's true. The boiling point of water is 100 degrees Celsius. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But if you don't put it into action, it's useless to you. The whole point of knowing that the boiling point of water is 100 degrees Celsius is to prepare delicious food. It's the people wandering in and out of the kitchen helping you prepare that food. It's the kids setting the table. It's the guest coming over. It's the food being presented and being enjoyed and the great conversation that goes on around that table. The boiling point of water is only helpful if it's a part of a story, if it's a part of a recipe, if it's a part of a dinner party, if it's a part of a nice meal with friends and family. Justification by faith, it's, 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 it's not less than a fact, but it is much more than a fact. It only becomes empowered and activated in story, in the story of your life, in the story of the universe. And Romans 5, 1 through 5 are going to introduce us to this concept, and Romans 5 through 8 are going to unpack this story. And the story goes like this. There's past, there's present, and there's future here. But this morning, and I talked a little bit about that when I preached on Romans 5 back in Lent, but this morning I want to point out three things about justification in here that are going to get us into this story. I'm going to talk to you real quickly about the purpose of justification. I'm going to talk to you about the motivation of justification. And I'm going to talk to you about the goal of justification. The purpose, the motivation, and the goal of justification. 
The purpose of justification in Romans 5 through 8 is reconciliation. Justification is not an end. Justification is a means to an end. Look what he says in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Justification leads to peace with God, reconciliation. We're going to come back to this in the reading next week, although we won't spend as much time on it. Verses 10 through 11, Paul says this, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation is the purpose of justification. Justification should lead to reconciliation. Do you remember when you were a kid, or when you had, this happened when I, to me when I was a kid? It's happened to my kids. I remember getting in fights with uh, my, usually my uh, middle sister. Um, the sister is a year younger than me. I would get in fights, and uh, mom and dad would catch us, and one of them would say, now you have to say that you're sorry. And then I would say, I'm sorry, because I was told to say I'm sorry, right? And had these conversations with your kids too. And typically what we would say is, no, I want you to say you're sorry and I want you to mean it, right? There's probably actually a better way to say that, though, a way that kind of gets at what you're trying to say when you say, say you're sorry and mean it. It's not just enough to say that you're sorry. That's important. It's important to ask for forgiveness. But the goal should be reconciliation. The goal should not just be to say to your sister, sorry, sorry for punching you. The goal should be a renewed relationship, a healing where there's no more punching, where there's welcome, invitation, and openness, and shared fellowship again. Let's get back to playing. See, justification is like this. Frequently we think of justification as Jesus dying on the cross so that he can say to God, okay, I died on the cross, now now they're going to tell you they're sorry. Okay, tell them you're sorry. And we tell God the Father, okay, we're sorry for our sins. And God says, fine. And that's enough, right? Actually, the goal is not just this legal transaction where we say we're sorry and ask for forgiveness, Because of Jesus, God forgives us. That's true, but there's more to it. The goal is peace with God, reconciliation, this renewed relationship, this this, uh, repairing. Look, justification, real justification, will lead to reconciliation. It will lead to relationship. What's your relationship with God like? Have you treated him as sort of a legal rubber stamp? Or do you have a new, fresh, vibrant relationship with God? Are you in in God's Word? Are you reading the Bible? Are you praying? Are you spending time with God's people? Do you think about Him? Now somebody's going to say to me, okay, I see what you're doing now. You're sneaking works in the back door, right? It's not just enough to be justified. Now you have to be doing good works too. I didn't say good works. I said relationship. You're not always going to feel like reading your Bible. You're not always going to like to talk to God. Sometimes you're going to be angry with him. Sometimes you're not going to understand him. Sometimes you're going to feel like he's not present. You're not always going to obey him. But I'm talking about relationship. I'm talking about being connected to him. I'm talking about being in God's word, even if you don't understand it. Even if you don't like it sometimes. This isn't about good works. This is about the peace with God that comes out of justification. You cannot cut these two apart. And we've tried too long to do that. Real justification will lead to peace with God. That's the purpose of justification, reconciliation. But the the motivation of justification goes right in hand with this. Reconciliation implies a connection, a relationship, right? The motivation here, in fact, is love. 
the motivation of justification is love. Look at verse 2. Through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The word grace means favor. We stand in God's favor. Think about this just for a second. I know this is almost a cliche. I almost feel guilty for saying this to you. God likes you. God loves you. God wants a relationship with you. In Jesus Christ, all of the favor that God has toward his own son, whom he's loved as himself, like like he loves himself, like he loves the Spirit from eternity, all of that love comes to you. Ask yourself this question. Who does God love more, Jesus or me? And the answer is, he loves you and me who are in his son Jesus exactly the same amount that he loves his son Jesus. In fact, he uses the word love down in verse 5. Hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. I can't tell you how. This is a little bit strange. Paul's, you know, if you read the Gospel of John, if you read the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, love will be all the way through. This is love. We know that God loves us. We should love each other. He talks about all the time. Love. John does. Paul really doesn't talk a ton about God's love. And when he does, you should listen. When he does, it's because Paul is convinced that the heart of justification and at the heart of the reconciliation that comes from justification is God's attitude of grace toward me and you and his son, Jesus Christ. He actually loves you. God is not against you. I'm not saying that bad things aren't going to happen to you. I'm not saying that he's not going to hold your hand and lead you through tough times. But his basic attitude is the grace in which you and I stand. God loves us. Look, this is a connection that we have with him through through adoption, right? God loves us like his own son. That's what it comes down to is it comes down to adoption. That's the purpose of justification is reconciliation. The motivation of justification is love. But the goal of justification is glory. I use that word glory here. I'm going to explain what I mean in just a second. Verse 2 says this, again, back to verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope. It's future, right? We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's not super clear what Paul means by glory right here. As we go through five chapters 5 through 8, we'll see it more and more, especially when we get to chapter 8, when he talks about glorification for those whom God foreknew, he justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. We'll talk about the glory of God there. In the Old Testament, the glory of God is his presence. It's his presence in his temple. In Jesus, the glory of God is made manifest. Everything that is God is revealed in the, in the glory of Jesus Christ. On the last day, we will completely be in the presence of God. We will be experiencing full glory. And we will, in turn, because of that, be glorified, Paul says in Romans 8, 28 through 30. This is what he means by the word glory back here in verse 2, is that the goal of justification is this being with God, being in God's presence. Knowing, you see where where this this is all revolving around relationship with God, right? Justification is about reconciliation, renewed relationship. It's about love, God's attitude towards us, and it's about about, uh, glory, Uh, him bringing us into his eternal presence now already, not yet completely, but someday completely, and glorifying us in the process. This is about relationship. This happens through suffering, though, and and this is part that I did talk about this several weeks ago in Romans 5, so I don't want to spend too much time on this, 
But Paul says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But, but more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings too because we know that sufferings produce endurance, endurance character, and character produces hope, that very thing that we have in the future glory. Look, Robert Frost said, there's a line in Robert Frost's poem, A Servant of Servants, where he says, the best way out is always through. Honestly, the only way out is through. This is, what, this is the meaning of Christian suffering, is that there's no way to get around it. I know it's troubling. I know that many of you s- struggle with philosophical questions about, does God really love us? Is there really a God who can allow suffering like this? But for right now, the point, Romans 5, is just no way to get around it. The suffering is the pathway to the hope. It's the suffering that produces the hope, which is the faith in the, glory, the future glory of God in our future relationship with him. One of the problems with you and I struggling with this is just where we happen to be located in our culture now. For most of the Christian church's existence, suffering was just a part of it. Christians read their Bible and they understood that being a follower of Jesus doesn't make you anything more than human. You're going to suffer. God says in Isaiah, when, I, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. He doesn't say you're not going to pass through any waters. So when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And the river will not overflow you. When, when you pass through the fire, you will not be consumed. He doesn't say you won't pass through any fires. He says that when you pass through the fire, you won't be consumed. Jesus tells his disciples in Mark 8, if anybody wants to follow me, take up your cross. Why is it that we're surprised then when there's crosses to be born? Why is it that we're surprised when there's sufferings and strugglings in the world? Well, the answer, if I can do this really quick, is sort of cultural. About three or 400 years ago, we in the West decided that wasn't good enough. We need a God who can get us out of suffering. Science, rationalism, begin to make promises to us in the 17 and 1800s that I, science says, can cure you of suffering. Medicine can cure you. We'll figure out a way to cure all diseases. And it's, even, it's hard to make you guys understand, all of you who are listening to me now are postmoderns in some sense, to understand the optimism of the 19th century in the West, in the early 20th century. The optimism that medicine can cure all diseases. That sociology and anthropology can end all wars. That we can, by, by just applying human reason to it, can gain all knowledge. We can get rid of all suffering. Now, you and I don't believe this anymore. And the reason why is, well, there's a lot of reasons. One of the big ones is World War II. After World War II, we in the West begin to realize that the promises that science made to us to get rid of all suffering just don't work. Science just can't back that up. That's where you are right now, isn't it? This is the struggle that we have with the coronavirus, is that we can't believe in science. I mean, we like science. You know, we want medicine to do its work. I like my cell phone. I always say this when I talk about science. I like my cell phone. I like fuel injection. I think that airplane travel is fascinating and convenient. But I don't believe in science as a religion anymore. Science has not helped us out here. What is science doing? Science says, stay at home. Don't be around any other people. Don't go to work. We'll get on this. In a year or two years, we'll have this thing solved. We don't believe in science anymore. We don't believe in the politicians anymore or the media. They either just tell us what we already think or they say stuff if they don't agree with us. They're saying stuff to try to control us. 
We don't believe in God anymore too, though. This is a fascinating twist to the story is that we refuse to go back to the one we abandoned. Because after all, he never promised us anything more than suffering anyway, right? Why would we go back there? We're like the dwarves in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, who after the false Aslan, the false god has been exposed, they refuse to go back to the real god and insist the dwarves will now be for the dwarves. And so we hole up in our homes, racked by fear, insecurity, not knowing what's going to happen next. When if we would just read our Bibles, when if we would just give ourselves over to the heart of God, we would know that this was the game plan from the beginning. In Jesus Christ, suffering produces hope, which does not put us to shame, because the love of God is poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's the journey that I want us to go on in Romans 5-8. through We'll, we'll pass through some waters in Romans chapter 6. We'll struggle with our inner demons in Romans chapter 7. We'll grapple with our deaths in Romans chapter 8. I promise. But the end game is, is that God has promised that since I have gone to the great lengths to justify you, you in Jesus Christ, I guarantee that I will fix all these things. Amen. Let's pray. God, we pray this morning that you would give us this full confidence and hope in the work of your Holy Spirit, applying the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus, to us so that we stand in your grace, that we stand in your favor. Convince us again by the power of your word that we are in your favor, that you do love us. We pray that you would continue to be with our church body, separated like we are. And the needs that we have are more difficultly known and met when we're separated. Uh, Give us the boldness to share our hearts with each other, the things that we're struggling with, the things that we need. Loneliness is a huge struggle. To be sick and to be lonely at the same time is an even bigger struggle. And of course, death is creeping up on all all of us uh, sooner or later. And we're all afraid of this. Uh, Father, for all of our sister churches who are struggling with everything that's going on right now, with the, for, for the uh, 75 LCMS members who passed away in the New York City area this past month uh, because of coronavirus, to the people that have struggled with this sickness in all of your churches, for all the unbelievers who are struggling with this sickness, God, the, the path, to take us through the path of seeing your son Jesus Christ, the path of glory, as we all struggle with this. And also, for your own name's sake, Heal this. Heal it miraculously. Heal it in such a way that we, who are doing our best to protect ourselves from it and protect each other from it, for science, which is doing its best to come up with a vaccine and a cure as fast as possible, for the politicians, which are doing their best to create scenarios and systems in which uh, the people in their constituencies are safe, to do it in such a way that all of us can say, without a shadow of a doubt, that it's only you and your sovereign grace that solved this problem in such a way that we will inescapably have to say, you get the glory for this, God. Do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And now, uh, if you have this memorized, or if you're looking at the service, uh, you can confess uh, with us our Christian faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, 
begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now let's pray together the prayer that Jesus Himself taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. He lives to grow.